I'm not the house of cards that falls down easily. Ooh, I'm strong enough to handle what you throw at me. Welcome to Mental Health News Radio. I'm your host, Kristen Sunanta Walker. Just what are we going to discuss? The intimacy that is mental health. Let's continue to make it as comfortable as discussing brain health or heart health. This show has been on the air for several years and we have amazing co-hosts. And then we created a network of podcasters on mentalhealthnewsradionetwork.com, a place where every possible facet of mental well-being can be talked about openly. My show, after several hundred interviews, the format is this. Intimate, deep, funny, touching, sometimes uncomfortable, but always vulnerable conversations with interesting people. The goal is to have you, our listening family, many of you who have become my good friends, feel as though you are listening in on private conversations. Thank you for tuning in and becoming part of this amazing journey with me and now with our network of podcasters. Just knowing this podcast might be helping any of you realize you are not alone on this journey called being a human being makes doing this podcast worth every second. Hey everyone, Kristen Walker here, and I am on with someone that Frank King, our wonderful mental health comedian, referred to me. Um, She's a client of his for speaking. Her name is Sarah Navrachel, and she is a freelance writer and blogger. Uh, She's a survivor of childhood sexual abuse abuse and also um, being raised by a narcissistic parent. Boy, do we have a lot in common to talk about. Um, Her her life imploded when she began suffering from PTSD at the age of 37. That was her wake-up call. And over the past 10 years, she's rewritten her life, going from victim to victor. And now she teaches others to um, do the same. Sarah, I am so glad that we were introduced, and I'm so glad that you're on my show. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. I really appreciate you interviewing me. Absolutely. So that's a a mouthful. And I I could say the same thing, childhood sexual abuse, narcissistic parent, PTSD, all of those things. But um, tell, tell me with me, I became aware of a lot of stuff when I was really young. So I got therapy at a young age, which helped in many ways. It didn't help me understand the narcissism in relation to my mother. However, that I could not deal with until I got into my forties, um, which is its own journey. But for you, how, you know, how quickly did you know that you, you know, had a narcissistic parent? Like what age were you when you figured that out? Actually, that was relatively recently. I knew that that something was wrong. I knew that my mom and I fought a lot, but I was told that that was my fault. Mm -hmm. I knew that things weren't right in our family, um, that there was gossiping. And it actually was relatively recently when I would have labeled her a narcissistic mother um, in the sense that I could not be my own person. No one in our family can be their own person. Everyone revolves around my mother. Right. That's a very, um, it's like a thick web is kind of what I picture it as. I actually, when I started PTSD about 10 years ago, I actually decided that the best thing for me would be to break away from my mother. Mm -hmm. And that was a seven year process. Uh, We did try to have a relationship for a little while and um, boundaries were crossed. 
and decided that that was not a web that I wanted to go back into. Um, so as sad as that is, because it does cause relationship troubles with other people in the family, right? Um, I'm working with that. So it's a journey, isn't it? I mean, it it's, really not, it's not just, I think about that too. There are so many ways that I got away from my mother over and over again. So when I say I, I woke up in my forties, I was, it was a process of waking up over my entire life. I just finally actually woke completely up because I was able to do so in my forties. Absolutely. And it it is definitely a process. Even just the other day, I had to do a technique where a a gestalt technique where I separated myself from her again, because there's so many ways that a narcissistic parent has a hold on you and you don't realize until you get triggered here, you get triggered there. And it's like, oh, I'm still attached to her in this way. Um, and, And I think for me, the biggest fear was I always wanted to be seen. I always wanted to be loved for who I was. And the fear that if I completely break away from her, I'm going to destroy any chance that she might really see me and might really love me (laughs) the way I needed to be loved. That was the biggest fear. Um, And just that feeling of if my mom doesn't love me, how can other people love me? That, that really, fundamental thing like how can I be loved by anybody including God if my own mother doesn't love me and see me right right let's talk about the childhood sexual abuse how early in your life did you realize that was going on or that that's what that was um you know what's interesting is that started when I was one and when I was eight was when I actually then told my mom. So I was one of the people that dissociates because it happened so young. I became mm-hmm. a dissociator. So I basically most of my life even blocked that out. I did go tell my mom at eight um, that my foster brother was to tell him to stop pulling my pants down or something or asking me to pull my pants down. Um, that was when one of my foster brothers got kicked out. And then several months later, the other one decided to leave. Um, that I, and I, I just remember the trauma of that. Um, mm. I just remember the, the panic of it and, and thinking when he got punished that that was my fault, uh, which clearly it was not, but that's what happens, you know, as you know, with right. an abuser, you have this attachment, even though what they're doing to you is so, so wrong. Um, so I kind of took on that that lying part of that and that double personality where I was living kind of two lives. I was living one life to cope and another life to put a facade on for everybody else. Hmm. And during that time growing up, I just, I checked it out. I, I blocked it all out. Um, I know I remember when I was about 17, I think it was my graduation party from high school and I believe we had bratwurst and bratwurst was something that would, I would just be completely grossed out by. I never knew why. Um, and when I saw those, I said something to my mom about like all of a sudden the memory hit me of my brother being, you know, belted and being kicked out of the house. And I'm like, why did you kick him out? I seriously 
had blocked it out that much that I never even connected uh, until really that point. Then the memories started flooding back and then, you know, right. things, things slowly, you know, progressed. But really, I was so good at at dissociating from things and living a double life that it took till I was 37 for me to crash and burn. <laughs> hmm. And well, in that process, um, I did ask my mom at one point, like, why, you know, why didn't we talk about this? She said that that's what the therapist told them back then when they went. They said, if she doesn't bring it up, you don't bring it up. Well, of course, I didn't bring it up because I was dissociated from it. So I never dealt with any of it. Here I am, a mom of three kids. And, you know, they've got their issues. And I'm like, completely thrown for a loop for three years with that PTSD. Right. So as you, you know, walk us through going into the PTSD, getting to a a point where it's become unmanageable. What was that like? Yeah, that was um, kind of my turning point there was I was in the kitchen and my husband had come in to, um, cuddle with me a little bit and see if we could get together later on that day. Uh, The thing was that that had been happening more frequently. And I believe that's because I kept pushing him away. And Mm so he was asking more often. And I was just so triggered at that point. I was a very little girl in my mind. um, But I was old enough and adult enough to realize, too, that I was actually triggered and that here I was treating sex, physical intimacy with my husband, like he was a perpetrator and I just had to get him off my back. So he'd leave me alone for another week or whatever it was. So that was my wake up call here. I'm shaking in the kitchen. I'm looking at him. I'm wanting to run past him. And I realized I see him just like my foster brothers. He's just another perpetrator crazy because I had been married how many years and here that's what I had been doing and didn't realize it that was my wake-up call from that moment on things started to get a lot worse I would see soap come out of the soap dispenser and just want to throw up into the sink Um, my my uh, claustrophobia went wacko and I couldn't even wait at a train Uh, just would want to get out of the car and just panic Um, If I saw a train coming, I'd turn around and go find another way to go. Just a lot of um, couldn't ride in my husband's car because I couldn't control the heat. I couldn't, you know, I I felt like I was trapped. So a lot of um, body memories started coming back. Um, Physical intimacy with with my husband was just so much harder because pressure in certain places would trigger me and I'd just snap and go cold. It's just, you know, that whole process of I don't. I don't really know how I got through that time, except that I was in therapy three times a week, most weeks. That's what it takes. Oh my gosh, I get it. I I mean, I've got a 32 year relationship with my only husband I've ever had and he's my ex-husband, but we certainly went through um, so many of those things that you're talking about. Uh, and he knew from the beginning that before we ever got married, he knew what my past was and, but, you know, knowing it doesn't 
stop you from still having a lot of difficulty being physically intimate, being triggered. He didn't know how to deal with it. I did certainly didn't know how to help him. I mean, when I tell people we went through the wars together, like I'm not kidding. The fact that we, that we are best friends today is like a miracle. (laughs) It is absolutely. Yes. And there have been many times, even recently where my husband's like, I just don't know how we can make it any longer. It's been such a hard road. And it's like, now things are really starting to get better. And we're so glad we didn't give up because oh, yeah. it's, you know, it's like we went through the worst. Why wouldn't we enjoy the best now? Exactly. That's how I look at it. I mean, it's mm-hmm. so love. I just saw him and, you know, to have him be able to just touch me and give me a hug and a kiss and even make like a funny sort of flirty sexual joke with me. Those things used to make my skin crawl. They used to make my skin crawl. And now, you know, I'm like, it's wonderful and lovely and loving and we're so grateful, but man, did it take a lot of work to get to this space? Absolutely. So how about with your kids? Did I did not tell my son anything about my life in terms of sexual abuse until he was 18 Mm -hmm. I it's not that I didn't feel like he could couldn't handle it or that it was wrong to do it I just couldn't it was like throw up in my mouth I just Mm -hmm. couldn't do it um and that's everybody's individual choice so how you know how have you navigated that path having three kids Yeah, um, my oldest daughter, actually, when she and I went to therapy to heal some uh, things from our past together, um, Mm -hmm. where I did not treat her lovingly, I hated myself. And so I let her know, pardon me, I let her know that I hated her too. And that's a really Mm. tough thing to have overcome. Um, But I have apologized to her. We have been to therapy. I have worked through that with her. And we have a great relationship today. Um, but she actually saw on the form because we had to fill out the same form. She saw that I had been sexually abused. Um, she, so I didn't tell her anything about that really because she didn't want to know. Uh, she said, mom, when I'm ready, I'll tell you. Hmm. Um, the, but the family does know that I had a difficult time with my foster brothers. Um, my two younger kids know that, uh, I haven't told them that it was sexual abuse. I just told them that they weren't nice to me. Um, and they know that mommy has a hard time, you know, all these 10 years they've been growing up and I go in my room and I'll cry and they will hear me. And sometimes I have to just holler or whatever. And I'll just tell them, I just need to go work through some stuff and don't worry, mommy will be fine. And that's been kind of our process of, they know I had a hard life. And I've said, you know, you're just not ready yet to hear about it, but someday you will. And they're just, you know, that my younger two are 12 and 14. They just don't need to know right now. Right. But what they do know is that their body is theirs, that nobody should be touching it unless they request a parent to check something or -hmm. they go to the doctor and they feel comfortable with that. Otherwise, it's their body and, you know, We've, we've put up the, uh, basically, this is my space, don't mess with it yes. kind of thing. And yes. if anything ever happens, you tell 
somebody immediately that you trust. And if they don't listen to you, you tell somebody else. And if they don't listen, you tell somebody else until you find someone who will listen and help you. Yeah, I was thinking about this the other day. Um, We had a, we had a relative um, stay with us. He was 19 and my son was like probably 10. And, um, you know, he, my son just always knew that he could open his mouth and say whatever, you Mm -hmm. know, we were not perfect parents. I was totally royally screwed up in many ways. His father had a very difficult, very, very difficult and abusive childhood as well. How we figured out what we were doing. We did the best, we did the best we could and we made a ton of mistakes and my son deserves, you know, as much therapy as he wants for the rest of his life for it. But um, one thing I can say that we stopped in our generation was what you're just talking about. Um, This, this 19 year old decided, started to start grooming him and showing him, showed him a porn film and the next day my son was in the car with me and he goes mom um you know this I was shown this blah 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 and I mean I picked up the phone I called his father I said this is what happened he goes he's out of our house immediately and Mm -hmm. we talked about it with our son and we do we did what didn't happen for us you know And uh, my son brought that up the other day. He's 29 now. And he was like, I remember that. I remember that. I knew I was afraid to tell you guys because I was, I wasn't afraid I was going to get in trouble, but I felt bad for him. And I said, I said, yeah, because he was grooming you to feel bad for him. And he goes, yeah, now I understand that as a 29 year old. But at the time I just felt guilty for saying something. And I'm like, thank God you did. And we were on it like a shot. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. That part of my story, um, my parent, my mother did catch one of my foster brothers when I was in diapers. Uh, I believe that was when I was one Mm -hmm. and they took him to a counselor and that counselor, psychologist, whatever you call him, told them that it was just teenage exploration and they shouldn't worry. Oh my God. ensued seven years of abuse. Um, so yeah, so absolutely. Um, we will do you know, we're very careful too. Our kids haven't slept over <laughs> right. at people's houses. We're just very careful because it's not worth the risk. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And when they have a parent that does speak out, um, that helps uh, because they have a model to look at. Um, you know, unfortunately, my mother spoke out about her abuse and it was ignored. Luckily for me, even though major issues with her being extremely narcissistic, I was able to tell what happened to me and something was done about it. So every generation, I feel like in my family's long history of all kinds of trauma has done a little bit better than the generation before. Absolutely. And that is one thing I'm so grateful for that when I did tell them that they did, they did kick him out. um, Good because it could have gone on longer so right absolutely so when you talk about and i i know we're like this is only a short limited time to do a show and there's like i know the lifetime of of work that goes into where you're at now but what fascinates me the most in what i read about you and what we talked about before the show was you talking about changing the narrative of your life 
And I want you to talk about that because some people hear that and they think, oh, that's like, you know, narcissists who change the narrative of their life to be this rose colored glasses baloney um, that that isn't real. And that's not what you're talking about when you bring that up. So I, I guess I want you to kind of differentiate that for our listeners, what you mean by changing the narrative of, of your life. Absolutely. Um, I thought about that too, actually, that when I'm doing the rewriting things that I do, am I creating something that's just this imaginary thing? And mm-hmm. I realized that, no, I remember a real experience. But what rewriting does is it helps you to see the truth instead of the lie that you took on from that experience. So there's an experience I have, if we have time for this. Um, Of course, please. I was on the swing set. I believe that's actually the day that I ran and told my mom. I was on the swing set by myself in the backyard swinging. My foster brother came up to me standing in front of me looming there and was asking me to do, to undress basically out in the backyard. Um, And my dad was in the garage, which was lower than where I was, but there was a little window there and I could see him. He was turned sideways though, because that's the way that the workbench was turned. And I was, I just remember my panic, my feeling trapped, my wanting to escape, I remember not looking at my foster brother, but I kept looking over to see if my dad would see me. Would he see Mm -hmm. me? Would he please come? I also was looking at my dad to see if he would see me because I would get in trouble. It's this double-edged sword. Right. So I, every time I thought about that experience, all I had were the feelings of I wasn't worth saving. I should have gotten in trouble. Um, I should have said, you know, I should have done what my foster brother asked me to because he's older than me. Um, But that wasn't right. That was probably the biggest time that I realized that that wasn't right. And I didn't escape. And that's what I'm left with. It's like a movie that ends terribly Mm. and you feel so bad. But you can go back and rewrite it. So I went back and I rewrote that experience. I stopped at the part where I kept looking at my father and The last time I looked at my dad, he turned and he looked up at me and he saw the panic in my face. He came out of the garage. He picked me up and he said, honey, what's going on here? And I told him and my foster brother told him I was lying, that I made it up. And my dad believed me. And my dad told me that he was proud of me, that he was sorry and that he was gonna go take care of some things with my foster brother, but he'd be back to talk to me. I know that didn't happen, but I will tell you what, now when I think of that experience, I feel worthy, I feel worth saving, I feel loved, I feel heard, I feel believed, and I don't feel trapped anymore. It's a completely different feeling. And, And the greatest thing is, My brain did all that. I did not sit here and consciously think, well, I could have my dad come out of the garage, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) No, your imagination takes over. You just let it write what it needs to write so that the truth comes out instead of the lies that I was living with till I'm 46 years old. Right. Then 
all of a sudden my imagination exploded. I pictured myself swinging really high and my brother standing in front of me and me just swinging higher and higher and higher until I came around and I kicked him in the chest with both my feet and knocked him across the yard. <laughs> I pictured other things that all of a sudden it opens up this feeling of you have choices, you are not trapped, you have power um, to, to escape, to help yourself. And it's an empowerment feeling. So it's such a wonderful way to yes, understand that the reality happened, mm -hmm. but that your brain can't tell the difference between reality and the imaginary. So you can right. what you believe about yourself, what you believe about others, what you believe about the world, what you believe about God, just by going back and letting your imagination redo that experience for you. Oh, I love this. I absolutely love this because it isn't the denial of what happened it's the it's giving yourself permission to be a, a victor in your story without denying what really happened and that's the piece I think that's so powerful um, because you can do that as an adult I don't know who someone um, you know we get tons and tons and tons of emails and comments and things like that and someone had just put it was a comment that's what it was on a one of the shows we did about mother-daughter um, sexual abuse. And she had written, um, you know, what happened to her and how she didn't understand if it really was sexual abuse and if I thought that it was and all this kind of stuff. And I always have to say, well, I'm, you know, I'm not a counselor, so I can't give you any kind of like official diagnosis here, but, um, but this is what I hear from your story. And then I told her, and I'm so glad you just shared this with me because I told her one of the most powerful things for me as an adult was to go back and do what you're talking about. Just rewrite the story of, of what happened in my head, where I came from a much more empowered place about it. So I, I want to ask you this, though. One of the things that you learn from having a narcissistic parent, boy, do you learn how to lie. And you also learn how to lie for them. You're act, it's actually a requirement of, of uh, children, of narcissists to lie for them because you've got to keep this fantasy island that they live in going. What trips me up about that when it comes to sexual abuse and things like that is, you know, they, part of what they keep control over you with is they keep control of your story. And they keep control over it because they want to put themselves in the best light possible when it comes to your story. And that is very different from what you're talking about. So I want to examine that a little bit more also, that yours is about an empowering thing that you took on yourself. It was not you changing a story in order to make the narcissistic parent you know, look better. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is all healing that I've done. Uh, on my own, with counselors, uh, with my family, with some spiritual healers. And it actually has nothing to do with my mother. My mother would claim that when when she caught them, you know, the counselor said, don't worry about it. It's childhood, you know, exploration, teenage exploration. Uh, and she, you know, you would think at that point, if she really believed that, she would do nothing differently. But she tells me that she spent all those years 
vigilant 24 seven. Her life was a living nightmare. She made it all about her. And I'm like, um, if you know there's something wrong, you know, if you have to move your girls downstairs so they're not by the boys, whatever, like if you are vigilant 24 seven, you can't tell me, you know, you don't put on a little child that they're not allowed to go upstairs. Right. They're, they're not responsible for their own safety. Um, you cannot be around when you're at work. You aren't in my bed at night. You're sleeping. Right. So, you know, it, it really wasn't about her. And when I and when I told her, I was dismissed. I don't know why you're having problems with this. It was all done by the time you were eight. You know, it was just more invalidation. And, and you know, trying to turn it around on her and how hard her life was. What I've learned is that, you know, I, I thought honestly that I could not heal without my mom apologizing, without her understanding, without her changing. And what I found is that none of this is about her. It's about my story and my journey. And then what I'm going to do with that in my circle of influence. Um, right. I have broken from my mom. I honestly don't care that that was so hard for her because she created that for herself. Right. And um, this isn't about, I don't know. It's just not about her. It's right. not about her. This is my story. She's chosen her path. She can change it, but that's just where she is. And this is where I am. I find it fascinating how easy it is. Um, and I guess it's because we aren't these kinds of mothers. I mean, we don't, we didn't do this with our kids, but I, I find it fascinating when, when we look at a narcissistic parent, how seemingly easy it seems for them to just not have their only child or one of their children as a part of their life, that that's easier for them than actually dealing with, you know, evolving and, it, it, that that's the part that boggles my mind. It just boggles my mind at how easy it is for them to just walk away as if you didn't even exist. Ah, and that hasn't been my experience with my, with my mother. She has wanted to have, you know, a relationship and has, as soon as we did let her in, just wanted to glob on and just like everything was open to her. Um, and she blames me for, you know, walking away, some of, you know, mm -hmm. a, a sibling of mine, you know, blames me for walking away. Um, but fortunately, I have some people in my family who see that that is the best thing for me to do. And right. um, so that hasn't been my experience. I would say that my mom is on the lower end of the narcissistic spectrum, um, definitely mm -hmm. very shaming, very invalidating, but not abusive in the way that many narcissistic parents right. are. Um, but it doesn't change the fact that there's that web and that you can't be yourself and that everything is about them and how they right. look. And that lying piece that you were mentioning, I, I remember, I don't know that it was conscious. It was just that that's what was modeled for me with my foster brothers. Absolutely. They were one person here. They were another person there. I remember the time I realized that we were sitting in church and uh, one of them actually passed gas and I thought, how horrible that smelled. I was sitting right next to him and I looked up and I was utterly disgusted by him. And I remember thinking, you're here in church. Nobody knows. We have this perfect family and I hate you, you know? Right. 
and you're doing these terrible things and nobody knows. So, um, yeah, that lying piece, I, I just became a liar. I, I became able to live a double life. Uh, and it's taken me a long time to not live a double life. How have you navigated this, you know, with your own kids? Because I know my son and I had a really, um, really rough time when I stopped communicating with my own mother. And um, I had to, I had to deal with, okay, we, we may never speak again, we may, this may not be repairable because of the control that she had. And luckily, that is not what happened. And we are closer than we ever have been. And I'm so glad that what happened happened. But I had to get to a place where I was where I was able to go, okay, um, if 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 this is irreparable, I will survive. I will survive this. Um, so and and there are things, you know, that I learned at bended knee. I don't blame my mother for those things because I did them as an adult, but I did unhealthy narcissistic things. I mean, good God, I got it from both sides, mother and father, of course, you know, that, that was my modeling, but I evolved, you know, from those things and made reparations and all of those things, but it's still, you know, there, it still doesn't take away from the pain that your own child experiences at your hand because of what you learned. Well, also, yeah, it's what you learned, but you don't, you know, I don't blame my parents for my own actions. So how have you navigated that road, you know, with your own kids? Yeah, absolutely. Um, my oldest daughter, you know, got the brunt of it. Um, we're very blessed that when she was seven, I read a book called Trading Places and I learned what empathy was and what validation was. Uh, and that really changed our lives, changed our relationship because I was able to start to see her and validate her. Fortunately, my other two children were were only, I believe, um, let's see, she was seven, so they would have been, I can't subtract right now, one and two. So they were very small when I learned that. Um, so they had a very different growing up um, than she did up until that point. Um, you know, from, from that point on, I had learned right. to validate. So basically, you know, they they haven't had you had an, an awareness yeah right. you, you. with me but with emma you know we we did a lot of therapy to repair things we did a lot of um uh, tapping techniques and things like that to repair things i would sit with her and i and i would apologize and as far as the family relationships go um my i've been really away from my mom basically eight years so you know, right. nine even. So um, the interactions that my oldest had with her weren't, they didn't really feel very good. So she recognized that. And then when we did have a little contact with her, it was like, um, mom, she said these things to me and I really didn't feel comfortable about what she said about my blog. It's like, so yeah. she knows. And the other two um, had not seen her since they were like four and five. And that was for them, it was just, um, they just see, they just see that you know, yeah. I'm very different than her and they don't want to really be with her very much. So it's not a big deal. What's hard is grandpa. Mm. It's hard not seeing grandpa. It's hard not seeing the relatives and going to the family gatherings. That's oh probably the hardest thing for it. 
for them. It is, and that's just that's just the way that it is. Um, I, I completely completely understand. My son, we we didn't uh, we didn't get him involved in our families at all uh, because we just didn't know how to navigate that. So he was very 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 sheltered in that way. And then he wanted to be involved with family more as a teenager. Got involved with them, and then that lasted maybe. A few weeks before you came home and said, um, now I can see why you never wanted me to be involved with these people. Yes. So, yeah. so he made his own decision, you know, about that. But uh, it's, it's really fascinating. So the last thing I want to ask you today is how do you manage um, the triggers that inevitably come up? Because I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, just recently I was around this woman who is a raging narcissist. And um, it took me about two weeks to figure it out. And I was so, I don't have these kind of people in my life. You know, I just, I don't, I used to have them around like buzzing around like flies all the time and I don't anymore. Mm -hmm. And, but every so often one will come in because you know, you know, they exist. So they're going to come in. And I was so triggered, so triggered just being around her, it, that it was palpable. Um, and I ran into counseling and said, my God, I've got to, you know, have a more effective way of managing my own triggers when I'm around these kind of people. So how have you dealt with that kind of thing? When you run into someone, you're like, oh my God, this person is my mother incarnated right before me. Yes. Um, <laughs> absolutely. And identify you know, with that and with the triggers, you know, with the sexual abuse, all that, um, I have really learned to become self-aware. That was something with dissociating that I didn't even know how to check in with myself. So I've learned that if I even get angry with my husband or my kids or um, I'm feeling overwhelmed or I'm pulling back from someone, even though that person needs to be in my life for some reason, um, like, you know, even with a, a coach or something, if they say something that reminds me of how my mom would treat me, then I pull away from them and I just kind of stonewall and don't want to interact. Mm -hmm. um, so I've learned to become really, really self-aware and um, just uh, my bedroom is my sanctuary. I just head into the bedroom. I sit on the floor with a pillow. I get my journal. I get my blanket. I might grab my Bible and I grab my tapping technique. Um, sheet that I have. And that's, that's what I do. I have several techniques I've learned in therapy and from books. And I just check in with myself and say, the best thing I've learned is to say, what belief do I have about myself that's being activated by this person or this experience? Right. So if I run into somebody like my mom, what that tells me is like something will come up in me like you don't matter. Right. Or you're inherently flawed. There's something wrong with you. You don't have anything to say. Your opinion doesn't matter. So those kind of things, those beliefs that I have will come up and then I'm able to clear them with techniques like brain spotting. Uh, that's one that your listeners could look up mm -hmm. um, that I've done with a therapist and by myself. And also um, some modified tapping techniques that I've learned from Dr. Henry Grayson from a book called Your Power to Heal. They have been incredibly helpful. But that first step is to really check in with yourself and see 
Uh, because quite often we can um, project the attributes yeah. of those that have hurt us onto yeah. others. Just like with my husband, I saw him as a perpetrator, even though I didn't even know it. Right. So we, we enmesh them. And when we can separate them um, and see one person for who they are and, you know, a different person for who they were, then we can process that and see, well, what does it say about me? What is it triggering in me right. that makes me feel so bad or so upset being around them? Right. Um, yeah. Even just last night, I was just in a dither. I don't know why. I told my family, I'm heading into my room. I'm just, <laughs> I just needed to cry. That's just what I needed to do. So I sat in my closet and I cried and I listened to praise music and I just cried and journaled and that was what I needed. And, and that's okay to just let that out, check in with yourself, just be more self-aware. That's really, really helped me. Well, we're going to get into that more because we're doing something new listeners. Uh, we're going to do after show uh, just 10 minute breakdowns. We film with, with our webcams. Um, what, after we do some of the, our most impactful shows, this one being one of them with Sarah. So look for us on our YouTube channel for mental health news radio network to kind of get a, after show breakdown of this particular show and Sarah to end our podcast today, let our listeners know, you know, where is it that they can find out more about you and how to work with you? Sure. My website is sarahlizalife.com and that's spelled S A R A L I Z A L I F E.com. And then all my handles have Sarah Liza or Sarah Liza Life in them. So my YouTube channel is Sarah Liza Life, Instagram and Facebook. I'm just starting out filling out my website. So you can find some information there, but I am working on videos and information to help people use their imagination to rewrite their life and become unstuck from these places where they're still at the bad ending in the movie. We don't have to leave it there. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. And I want to give a shout out to Frank King, who has just uh, another one of those people that walked into my life and just brought so much to our podcast network. Uh, what an incredible human being. And I know you'd give him a shout out too. <laughs> I know he's your coach for speaking, but um, what a, a great human being, isn't he? Mm-hmm. Fabulous. <laughs> All right, Sarah, thank you so much. And we will catch each other on uh, on our webcams next. Sounds great. Thank you. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in to another edition of Mental Health News Radio. I know, I know, no one likes commercials, but seriously, folks, without the help from these organizations, we could not stay on the air. Please give a shout out to zencharts.com. If you're a mental health or addiction treatment center, you'll want to use their EHR. It's gorgeous. And they're just good people. And also mygenetics, M-Y-G-E-N-E-T-X.com, because knowing your genetic code empowers your mental health treatment. And lastly, copenotes.com. We love getting positive messages right to our phones every day from Johnny Crowder. He's the lead singer of Prison, a heavy metal band sharing their music about suicide prevention, addiction recovery, and mental health. See, that was painless. Support them as they support us. Back to the show. 
Thanks so much for listening to Mental Health News Radio. Our podcast can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and hundreds of other podcast apps. Or you can visit our website at mentalhealthnewsradio.com. If you have a question or would like to be a guest, become a podcaster on our network, or join the amazing organizations that help keep us on the air, please email us at info at mhnrnetwork.com. Get ready for that special goodbye from our resident therapy dog, Miles, and a special thanks to Emily Sohn for letting us use her incredible song, Cordial, for our podcast music. Listen to the full song on SoundCloud at emily.sonne. Don't be surprised when I don't hate on you. After all, we promised we'd be cordial. Sometimes.